welcome to the fifth episode of Ukraine War Uncovered, podcast about the war in Ukraine. Today's 456th day of the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. My name is Pavlo, my colleague is Anna. We are Ukrainians and co-hosts of this podcast. In this podcast, we will uncover facts and stories about the war in Ukraine, some of which you may not hear from the mainstream media. We will provide you with key weekly updates about the war based on information from the ground, connect with eyewitnesses and experts directly from Ukraine, and share stories of wartime life inside Ukraine and stories of temporary displaced people. We will also uncover Ukraine, its culture, language and history for you. In this episode, we will cover the routine life of those under shellings and will tell you a few brief stories of people from different cities of Ukraine. We believe it's important to show that Ukraine is not only about war, death and destruction. Life finds its way among bullets and missiles and people still try to find joy despite everything around them. The times when people had to leave for days and weeks in the tube stations in Kyiv and Kharkiv are in the non-distant past right now. The hard winter with regular blackouts and freezing temperatures will always remain in the Ukrainian memories. Now people find their agile way to balance work, chores and family duties on the one hand and frequent air sirens devastating news and volunteering on the other. Ukrainians developed a new term is called war-life balance. When missiles are flying overhead, people are working from bomb shelters, basements and bedrooms. When people have no power, internet, schools closed, so kids are at home. The stress and anxiety are intense, but still people have to find moments of joy. People have to find some way to balance work, volunteering, helping military and caring for family. Ukrainians have to find a way to make it all work. We would like to ask our first guest, Vladislav from Zaporizhia, working as a lawyer in Kyiv, a couple of questions. Can you please tell us where you were when the invasion started? Well, that's actually quite an interesting story because actually on the day when the invasion started in 2022, I was on the train traveling to my home city, Zaporizhia, from Kyiv, where I live and work. And that's why uh, at 6 or even 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, I woke up in the train, uh, started to read news, and the, the news actually said that the war has once again um, re-escalated with Russia and that there were uh, bombing and shelling and things like that happen all around the country. And then I spent uh, several days in Zaporizhia, uh, still figuring out what to do next in the what's uh, the situation, what's the contingency plan, because most of the people in Ukraine, they had so-called contingency bags, but my was uh, safely packed and uh, uh, stored in Kiev, and I was away. Yeah, so basically after uh, several days of consideration, me and my family, my girlfriend, we decided that it would be most, most smart to move to the western part of Ukraine for some time, because the Russian troops, they were marching towards uh, Zaporizhia at the time at quite, uh, quite uh, a big speed and uh, there, there was no certainty as to whether they will be stopped before Zaporizhia or, or in Zaporizhia or after Zaporizhia. So that, that was the main thing why we decided that. I stayed in the western part of Ukraine for some time and then I, was, I returned back to Kiev. I guess that kind of coincided or it was actually reasoned by the fact that Russian troops, um, they retreated from the outskirts of Kiev and I guess that 
probably with just some time passing after that I decided to return back to Kiev and from uh, that period of time I'm basically in Kiev for, for the whole time uh, except some locations and things like that but generally I am based in Kiev once again. How your daily routine, if that's correct to say so, looked like first few weeks and months after the invasion? I would say that we were lucky enough to have COVID before the war. Uh, unless, uh, uh, well, what, that's that's why we are different from uh, the whole other world. Uh, I mean, uh, if we didn't have COVID and the uh, IT solutions that were implemented because of the COVID, if we didn't have that those solutions in place at the beginning of the war, I think that the whole economy would be like much, much worse. I mean, they would be just paralyzed and probably would collapse. But because we had lots of solutions and lots of backup plans and the people were used to working remotely, basically many people were able to continue working within first weeks. And for example, in our law firm, I remember that we actually started started to work work like in on the second or third day of the invasion and that wasn't something mandatory to do i mean everybody were quite understanding as to the circumstances both management and the clients but generally there was just this attitude that you should be doing something and uh, many people were volunteering our firm was volunteering as such we had a volunteering fund as part of our organization we also were doing some voluntary work for foreign ministry, uh, I mean, Minister of Foreign Affairs and, uh, well, basically, Minister of Justice, many, many different ministers and uh, governmental bodies. So that's how the actual routine looked like in the first weeks. But then with the time passing, I guess, it just more or less turned back to uh, what is similar to what we had before the war. Surely curfew is something that actually changes your life uh, quite a lot, uh, especially when it was uh, quite strict and you were not allowed to go outside uh, after, I guess, seven or eight. Don't really remember what was the strictest limitation, but let's say let's say eight. This means that basically you have to finish your work if you are somewhere or you have to finish your gym or whatever you do outside. You have to you have to take this curfew into account and finish things really early. Right now it's not that strict. Uh, the curfew is limited at 11 p.m. So basically you can do almost all the things you need, it to, you need to do and you are used to do before the war. But generally you have to take that into account. Well, I guess that probably quite everybody in Ukraine have to admit that going to bomb shelters become a part of your life, and and you cannot uh, you cannot just decide not to do that. Just just today, for example, we had a quite huge bombing, uh, and I guess that in the city center of Kiev, many people were rather scared. I would say that was really an exceptional bombing day as compared to what we have throughout May and I guess um, I might be wrong but you can check this uh, this statistics online but I guess that in May we had probably like 50 or maybe 30 percent of days I mean like 10 or 15 days out of the whole month when uh, Russia actually sent uh, uh, kamikaze drones uh, or rockets uh, uh, to Kiev or other big regional cities uh, in Ukraine so bombing and uh, the necessity to go to safe places is actually uh, a part of your daily life today. 
No, that's something I think that people just uh, learned how to build their lives around this fact. And basically, you still go to the gym. And if this uh, catches you all the time when you are there, you just follow the instructions. And all the public places have instructions. Like if you are in the gym, then the gym suggests that case of an air alert, you have to go there and there and stay there until this and that. And then the same instructions uh, uh, people have in courts, in libraries, in cafes, in uh, whatever, restaurants, so all, all the places. So you cannot just, you know, eliminate your life and think that <laughs> you're only working uh, from home, for example, and uh, uh, when you're told so, then you go to, to a safe place. No, I mean, people just try to build their life, uh, to live their life, and uh, when they're forced to... Uh, take extra cautious measures, then they take it. But generally, I would say that most of the leisure places are back reopened, at least in Kiev. Uh, definitely the situation is different uh, compared from region to region, and especially it's uh, it gets worse and worse closer to the war line. So regions like uh, uh, Kharkiv region, like Dnipro region, uh, like Zaporizhia region, those regions are probably one of those uh, who suffer the most and I'm not and this list is not exhaustive I mean if we just look on the map we'll see all the all the regions where it differs how does a typical weekend in your city looks like uh, once again it's probably more or less the same as before the war so if people were used to go into the shopping malls and then uh, go into the cinemas and then having a dinner together with their friends people would still do that today uh, we are not talking about the situation yeah like a year ago because the war is already, the, the full-scale war is already half, uh, one and a half years to undergo. So today, people would still do that what they were used to do before the full-scale reinvasion. The only thing that, that would really change a lot is that they would need to take curfew into account and be at home in, 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 the, in the right time. They would need to be ready to change their plans to uh, go to the safe place in terms of the air sirens and air alarms. For example, if you are a movie fan, then in the movie, if the air alarm strikes uh, uh, in the middle of the film that we are watching, uh, most possibly you will be instructed to leave the place and go somewhere. Then you cannot see the end of the film. But yeah, that's something that we have to learn how to live with. Uh, uh, and it's not the most terrible thing to do, right? So generally, People are still trying to live their normal lives. They go to parks, they go to gyms. It's just that they're forced to almost constantly think about their security and uh, take extra measures. Let's move to Washington Post stories. In Kyiv, some interviewed said they feel guilt and grief that life can seem almost normal while so many Ukrainians are caught in the war's widespread death, destruction and displacements. In Kharkiv, more than 300 miles east, others said they feel frustration and resignation about their brutal reality. Maxim Skuba, 30 years old, is a full-time volunteer at a charity run out of, of a Kharkiv restaurant where he helps cook as many as 12,000 meals a day for distribution. I just work, I'm home, eat and go to bed, said Skuba, who ran an agriculture equipment business before the war. He wore an apron and a tired look on his face. It repeats every day, Skuba said. He's had mixed feelings seeing light-hearted photos and posts by Ukrainians on social media. I'm glad that they have the opportunity to drink coffee in peace, he said. 
but I want them not to forget that a war is happening here. If they have the opportunity to enjoy life, then let them have joy, he added. Denis, the bartender in Kyiv, said he felt conflicted about how much of pre-war life to embrace. He considered clubbing and dancing inappropriate. On the other hand, it's good to distract people from what they've seen, he said. Bartending is a distraction for him too, he added. Spending money on social outings, he, he argued, also helps the country. That's how we support the economy and this money can go to the Ukrainian army or, or some volunteer activities and generally help our country, he said. Now we welcome our second guest, Olga, from Odessa. Where you were when the war started? So I was in the Caucasian mountains when the war started, and uh, yes, it was quite hard to work um, there. Even being in the west of Ukraine, there there were still bombs there, and we were really scared. You know, I've lost my work because it was connected to uh, with a sea. And uh, we all know that uh, Russian warships were there, so I've lost uh, all the opportunities to work. But um, I've managed to find another one in the IT sphere. And um, yes, after that, I was able to work. Is it difficult to study work in your city at the moment? When was it hardest and why? Speaking about Odessa, it feels fearfully and exhausting now. Imagine you wake up in the middle of the night because of the air alert and um, most of people don't go to the bomb shelters at night and there are two reasons for that. The first one is you have to spend there an approximately three hours per night and the next day you need to work and you feel extremely tired. And the second reason is that there are no proper bomb shelters in some areas of the city. So we usually hide behind the two walls in our apartment. Yeah, you know, we just um, get used to it and uh, we, we are prepared for all this stuff. However, our nervous system is um, it's really exhausted. Are there any employment study opportunities for those who are looking for them? How does the employment academy market feel? I would say if you have money, you can learn everything you want. Of course, there are programs which support internally displaced people, but unfortunately they do have limits. Uh, the situation with the employment is quite challenging now. And um, firstly, there were major layoffs after the full-scale invasion. And secondly, uh, you know, local businesses just cutting their costs and foreign businesses did not enter the Ukraine, uh, enter Ukraine for security reasons. And um, additionally, I would like to highlight um, the discrimination of men. I, you know, this on the one hand, businesses are afraid of losing newly hired employees due to the martial law and soldiers' duty. And on the other hand, a lot of men are tend to seek the unofficial employment 
just because they are afraid to go to the front line of war, meaning they do not want to be registered at war. That's it. The war has changed lives of those who study and those who teach. As the country and educational institutions were prepared to remote teaching after the COVID, the transition was not a problem for many. Though students in rural areas with poor internet coverage and access to literature face significant hurdles to obtain the same level education as those in large cities. On the other side of the classroom, there are professors who keep teaching from the front lines, like Fedding Shardorn from Ujhorod National University, where he teaches classes in tourism and hospitality. With his helmet and AK rifle at his side, he holds his phone in bandaged hand, holding notebook in the other hand. I have been in the army for 70 days, he said, adding that he enlisted soon after the Russian invasion began in February. At that time, he said he was teaching classes on Monday and Tuesday. Now let's speak to you, our next guest from Kyiv. Can you please tell us where you were when the invasion started? I was in Kyiv at the beginning of the war, uh, particularly I live in the Kyiv suburbans near the formal borderline between Kyiv and the famous city of Bucha. Uh, actually, you can even see rooftops of Bucha uh, from my balcony. Uh, that is why the first day of war uh, was very loud for me. I saw lots of helicopters, jets, fighters, uh, from my premises, um, huge artillery systems, rockets and tanks were passing by my street. This all forced me to relocate uh, to a safer location. Uh, early in the following morning, on the second day of the war, uh, I traveled to another city, uh, nearly 200 kilometers from Kiev uh, to the west. It is co it's called Zhitomer. Uh, the road was very difficult and stressful. Uh, all uh, bridges were blew up by Ukrainian forces and enormous endless kilometers of traffic jams paralyzed the roads in central and western Ukraine um, what was more, what were more, more terrifying uh, the abandoned cars abandoned and crashed cars were all over the sideways uh, I also remember how we were driving through the night uh, on the oncoming lane and police cars uh, were passing by uh, and too, they were too busy and stressed to stop us and fine and this sense of uh, lawlessness was a bit terrifying then I stayed in Zhitomer for three or four months and then started switching between Kiev and Zhitomer uh, maybe one time in a few weeks uh, because I have a job to do I have work to do and that is why I cannot sit in another city for a long time Tell us, how do medical institutions function in your city? Is it hard to get an appointment with a doctor? Personally, I did not have any problems with medical institutions all over the war. Although I think there were uh, some troubles during the most stressing two or three days at the beginning of the aggression, now everything is functioning just as during pre-aggression times. Hospitals, doctors are working and operating in their full capacity. Is there any shortage of food essentials of, or fuel in store? Has this ever happened in your city during the war? I uh, indeed, I reckon empty shelves of uh, supermarkets during the first day of war. 
at the same time even though uh, there was some shortage of certain products I would not say that the shop was shops were absolutely empty anyone still had a chance to buy bread porridge buckwheat etc so basic and essential uh, food stocks uh, were absolutely available um, although in not in that um, enormous amounts as before the war um, also fuel shortages were massive on the beginning of the war with Russian Federation intentionally targeting petrol storages with guided rockets just as with the food still some gas stations were working and there was although costly and troublesome possibility to fill up your car how do state and local authorities functions are there any difficulties of obtaining documents or approvals had situation changed over time here i'd like to pay respects for ukrainian government because not only administrative organs are functioning but the courts are also reviewing cases in new course even though the cities are often suffering from shillings uh, and electricity shortages i would say that local and state authorities are operating are operating in their full capacity just as uh, hospitals as i mentioned before uh, despite the shillings and other obstacles imminent to the war in ukraine i also have not heard of any war related trouble or problem in their operation uh, let alone uh, the limited cases uh, where the respective authority is located in the vicinity of the battle line in the east of Ukraine. As I said, I think during the maybe first week, first few days uh, where when the chaos was in Ukraine, I think the authorities probably worked not that well. Maybe some, mm, some officials uh, were not in their offices, uh, were also traveling to the west of Ukraine, etc. Uh, but all the time since then, uh, so for the last year, I think the authorities are working uh, pretty good. And just as just before, just as before the aggression, everyone is on a place, everyone is working, and of course are reviewing the cases. So uh, I think, let alone the first week of the aggression, everything works okay. Let's move to sociology of Ukrainian society. According to Forbes Ukraine, there is a very high level of stress in society. At the time of pandemic, the level of subjective stress in Ukraine was inherent in 75-78% of Ukrainians, three out of four surveyed, which is a lot. Now 85-87% of Ukrainians feel it. When people are asked if they have symptoms of PTSD, such as sleep and mood disorders, increased heart rate, 64-65% of respondents say yes. That is, the syndrome will be very widespread. There are three main challenges in this society – security, financial situation, migration. The security situation is that people have to decide whether they are ready to live in Ukraine, where the level of security is quite low. The next priority is the financial situation. 77% of respondents saw a decrease in income compared to the pre-war period. 60% of adult residents of Ukraine are employed. Now we're moving to our next part. It's update from the front lines. So overview that lands and of front line remains approximately the same as previous weeks, with major battles happening around Bakhmut area. On 80th of May, Ukrainian soldiers regained between 700 meters in depth and 2,000 meters in width 
around Bakhmut, according to spokesperson for the East Center Trevati. On 19th of May, Ukrainian military regained initiative around Bakhmut and recaptured another 500 meters of the territory. May 21st, Ukrainian forces keep active counterattacks and keep moving forward, spokesman Sirsky reports. On 23rd of May, according to Institute of Study of War, Ukrainian military forces haven't included Bakhmut in their daily reports first time since in December last year. According to Institute for the Study of War, it can mean the Wagner Group soldiers could have infiltrated the city center of Bakhmut. Russian side claims that the Bakhmut is captured. Ukrainian side says the Ukrainian forces keep fighting around the Bakhmut area. It is also confirmed by the maps for the study, Institute of Study of War and Deep State maps. Now let's move to weekly news update. On May 17, the grain deal was extended for two more months, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said. In total, more than 30 million metric tons have been shipped under the Black Sea Initiative, which lifted a blockade of Ukrainian seaborne exports resulting from Russia's invasion in February of last year. On May 18, over the night, Ukrainian air defense forces destroyed 29 out of 30 missiles of X-101, Caliber and Iskander-K, and four drones. On May 19, over the night, Ukrainian air defense forces destroyed 16 out of 22 drones and several missiles. The same day, the US and its allies are planning to provide Ukraine with F-16 fighter jets, the White House has said. The timing for when Kyiv will receive the aircraft, how many will be delivered and which countries will provide them remains unclear. But an official stressed that they will not be used for an upcoming counteroffensive against Russia. Just to explain what is F-16, so the F-16 Fighting Falcon is a lightweight fighter aircraft that was initially designed in 1970s. It was first went into service in 1979 and was used heavily by the U.S. Air Forces in both Iraq wars and in Afghanistan. Originally built in the U.S. in consortium with Belgium, Denmark, Netherlands and Norway, the jet, which can travel twice the speed of sound, became one of the most popular military aircraft of all time and remains in wide use. Lockheed Martin, the U.S. manufacturer, said that there are more than 3,000 F-16 in service in 25 countries today. It has been suppressed by F-35 now, but it's still being manufactured for the sale by Lockheed in South Carolina. That's because it's cheaper, costing in the tens of millions, and because the US does not always give permission for the more modern jets to be exported. On May 20th and 21st, uh, G7 News. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky arrived in Hiroshima on Saturday afternoon for the Group of Seven Leaders Summit, his first trip to Asia since Russia's invasion began in February last year. Holding talks with G7 leaders and some in invitees, including Olaf Scholz, Emmanuel Macron and Joe Biden. Zelensky also met with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, their first face-to-face -face talk since the war, and briefed him on Ukraine's peace plan, which calls for the withdrawal of Russian troops from the country before any negotiations. Biden earlier announced a military assistance package worth 
375 million, which includes ammunition, artillery and vehicles, as he met with Zelensky in Japan at the G7 summit. On May 22nd, military legion Freedom of Russia, consisting of Russian opposition soldiers, announced that they liberated the village Kazinka in the Belgorod area. Russian territory. The local Russian administration introduced a state of emergency in the area. The Ukrainian government denied its links to this development. On May 24th, following the intervention of the military religion Freedom of Russia, the local government said that locals can get back home and the state of emergency has been cancelled. Institute of Study of War assumes that the legion forces were pushed back to the Ukrainian border. Moving on to the expression of this week. So this week's expression is gest dobroy voli, gesture of goodwill. Throughout the duration of the war, Russia utilized media and social media propaganda to discredit, intimidate or deceive Ukrainians both before, during and after Ukrainian offensive. In attempt to present their defeat in a favorable light, Russians portrayed their retreats as gestures of goodwill. The first gesture of goodwill came in late March, early April, when Russians retreated entirely from northern part of Ukraine after losing Battle of Kyiv. Following Russian's most recent retreat from strategical little Black Sea outpost Snake Island on June 30th, slight thrill, the Kremlin similarly declared withdrawal as a gesture of goodwill. Synonyms also used are tactical retreat, forced military needs to recruit. Now let's move to week in the history of Ukraine. May 20, 2009, Ukrainian football club Shakhtar Donetsk beat Jormal Berde Bremen in the final of the UEFA Cup and became the last winner of the UEFA Cup in history. It was the highest club-level achievement of independence Ukraine since 1991. So that's it for today. Thank you for being with us today. See you next week. Actually, hear you next week. In the next episode, we will cover the topic of Russian forces violence against women and children in Ukraine. We will briefly highlight the claims brought in the International Criminal Court and the concept of rape culture among Russian military. Glory to Ukraine. Glory to Ukraine. Thank you for being with us.